You know, I guess I think I've always been a professional critic, you know, or some sort of professional appreciator or something. Now, this is serious business here, man. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. It's that most wonderful time of the year, and what more could you want than a big dose of metal? I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. And I'm Greg Cott from the Chicago Tribune. We continue our metal-themed holiday by going back to the beginning, the dawn of metal. And we learn about one of rock's greatest curiosities, Paramount Records. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and Greg, tis the season for what else? Black Sabbath and Judas Priest. The dawn of metal, our conversation and our look back, is coming up in a little bit. But first, one of the most unlikely tales in all of the history of American recordings. listening to Sound Opinions, and that is Ma Rainey, the legendary mother of the blues, on a track called Bessemer Bound Blues. That, along with 799 other songs, is part of a new box set called The Rise and Fall of Paramount Records, 1917 to 1927, Volume 1. The set includes hundreds of songs, two books, six vinyl LPs, and 200 original hand-drawn ads from the period, all housed in an oak case modeled after a 1920s phonograph. This collection is produced by Jack White's Third Man Records, along with John Fahey's Revenant Records, two of the coolest labels in the independent underground. And Greg, it details one of rock and roll's greatest curiosities. How did a small Wisconsin chair company end up being home to one of the most impressive rosters in musical history? We're talking about names like Louis Armstrong, King Oliver, Jelly Roll Morton, Sunhouse, and of course, Ma Rainey. To find out, we're joined by Scott and Dean Blackwood. Now, Scott wrote the book that accompanies this Paramount box set, and his brother, Dean Blackwood, runs Revenant Records in Austin, Texas, which has released other noteworthy box sets by Captain Beefheart and Harry Smith, among others. Dean, welcome to Sound Opinions. Hello, guys. Thanks for having us. And Scott, you're here as well. Hi, Jim and Greg. Yeah, doing fine. So, Dean, you are very careful about what kind of projects you take on uh, with Revenant, and this was obviously something that you put a lot of love and attention into. Why lavish so much attention onto Paramount? What made you want to put all your energy into doing something this large and profound about this particular label? Well, I guess there were a couple of cross currents that probably led to this, but it, you know, some of it's just 
kind of gestational stuff from doing projects like Charlie Patton and our American Primitive series in that they included a lot of material that appeared on Paramount. And so in some of the work, some of the accompanying research work for those projects, just bumping up against over and over again this curious tale, Paramount, this Wisconsin label, you know, run from 1917 to 1932 out of a chair company in the middle of nowhere <laughs> but by these white men who really had no affinity for you know their black audience and yet somehow managed to become not only the leading practitioners in the so-called race records field but managed to compile a roster of performers that's really unmatched in the history of recording uh, music in America. As far as the real genesis behind the project, you know, uh, I had known Jack White for many years going back to uh, when the White Stripes were just getting started, probably around 2000 or maybe 2001. The real physical genesis of this was a timeline that, that we had put together just to make some sense of it, because one of the curious things, other curious things about the about the label, besides its its sort of happening into creating this incredible repository, was it just it's it's very hard to piece together because there's no surviving documentation, corporate records, and things like that, and uh, and so based on simply trying to put together a narrative that made sense in our heads, we had put together this timeline of activities and and artists. So this was just a few years ago, and it was really not until that moment we were sort of staring at this thing that it seemed to coalesce as, a, you know, we're both sitting there kind of slack-jawed, nodding our heads, going, I think there's a project in here. I, I got to jump, Dean, over to Scott here, because he wrote a fantastic book. It's essentially a book that comes with this package. Yeah, yeah. So deep was, was the, the research you did. Now, Dean just throws this out. It was a furniture company in the middle of Wisconsin. right? Mm. But I am fascinated by why the furniture company got into the record-making, the race record-making business. Right. So they're, they're in Wisconsin. The factory, the chair factory is in Grafton, Wisconsin. What happened was another stroke of strange luck and that Edison's factory burns down. Edison, who has these incredible phonographs um, that in these beautiful oak and mahogany you know, cases and it, it all burns down in uh, his New Jersey uh, factory just inexplicably and they're looking around, they're casting around for someone who could – pick up the slack and, and actually build these cabinets and continue to sell. And so they found in Grafton, Wisconsin, the one place that could do this on the, the mass <laughs> scale. And, uh, you know, there was really no thought at the time to records at all. I mean, records were an afterthought. Edison, during his time, didn't even put artist's name on the, names on the records. So it was a piece of furniture you bought. It was a piece of furniture, right. It was something to, you know— that your your friends could ogle and and be amazed by, <laughs> and they were probably fairly well off people who were buying them, and so in, in Grafton they start um, you know they start manufacturing these and they work out some kind of deal with Edison where they can get the means to make these records, the the material means the uh, mechanical means, and they do it again kind of just like. Uh, Edison had just as an afterthought. We need something to play on these beautifully polished pieces of furniture. <laughs> and these seem like the best, best uh, things to put on there. And they began casting around for people to record. 
as part of this. And usually it was, you know, kind of Sousa band marches and German and Czech music in the area. But then, of course, things changed very soon. change in that suddenly we have this label run by these white guys in a small town in Wisconsin, ends up with people like King Oliver and Jelly Roll Martin and Blind Blake and Fats Waller and Fletcher Henderson, Louis Armstrong, some of the greatest names in, in music history, making some of their key recordings. How do you explain that transition, Scott? I mean, what happened to take this label into this incredibly influential area of music? You know, they're casting around. Um, they had hired this this person to um, Art Satherly uh, to essentially manage all this, and he's you know he's not at this time anyway not sophisticated about what he's doing. He, in fact, he has no idea how the music business should should operate. He was hired principally because of his authoritative English accent. He was newly arrived within just a couple of years, and of course, he's casting around for people to record. And what happens is a collision of worlds where you, just by chance, again, Black Swan Records is going under. In Harlem. In Harlem. And uh, Mayo Williams, who was essentially selling records or record subscriptions, he wasn't an executive. As, as that company's going out of business, he's, he's on the south side of Chicago, near 35th and State, along the Stroll, and he gets an idea this is a graduate of Brown University. Who was also a football player. Who right? was also one of the first NFL players. Played in Hammond, <laughs> Indiana. And he played with Paul Robeson. Mm-hmm. He's also had this other life as a gin runner on the south side. <laughs> and he, he was an entrepreneur, as they say. A renaissance man. A true renaissance man. And he's an amazing character. And he got this idea from uh, the collapse of Black Swan. He knew of Paramount that he would make a cold call. So unannounced, he goes up there and essentially, as he said later, he just jived his way into the whole thing. And he told them huge exaggerations and outright lies about (laughs) his background and experience. I mean, when when he left, they thought that they had one of the top executives associated with Black Swan in some way, you know, someone who had that kind of experience. Well, in his defense, this was, I mean, the, the music industry was what, five years old? Yeah, right, right. And right. They, were, they were building stuff to put on top of your furniture. Yeah. Uh, it was all being made up on the fly, essentially. And the big key was, though, that he had already been in Chicago long enough to build connections on the South Side through the clubs, Dreamland Ballroom, Elite Cafe Number 2. Uh, Lincoln Gardens, all the the big places. He he knew the people who ran them. He knew uh, he was running gin all around. So, you know, it's the great uh, greaser of palms in a sense, <laughs> right? And so uh, he had these connections down. And so he could, when he walked into the offices, he could roll, you know, let Jelly Roll Morton roll off his tongue and he could talk about Ma Rainey's reign at the, you know, the Monogram Theater. And and they they felt they had a real authority. And in a sense, they did. Because because of these connections. And so he's able to bring in an amazing array of people and discover many people like uh, Papa Charlie Jackson, and, you know, in the Maxwell Street Market. Once you let me be your solid dog, you want to be your man and dog, solid dog. 
Charlie Jackson, who's the, you know, inventor of hokum and many other, uh, could play anything, came out of a medicine show tradition, and and, he, and many of the blues women who were vaudeville blues women had connections to him through also through Black Swan, including at the Waters, tremendous talent. Talking with Scott Blackwood and Dean Blackwood, two of the men behind a new box set on the historic Paramount Records here on Sound Opinions. And Dean, you've collected 800 digital tracks from 172 artists. Give us two or three that just like captured the whole venture and what was so important about it. What are the standout treasures to you? I'd say somebody like Jimmy O'Brien, you know, great, great clarinet player. You know, he, he looms large in, in Paramount's catalog. He has, he has an, uh, in excess of. Uh, somewhere between 20 and 30 recordings as a band leader. And he's sort of a tragic tale, a guy who basically basically drank himself out of a job, um, was replaced on and off, and then finally by, by Johnny Dodds and Lovey Austin's band, Lovey Austin being the band leader for Paramount's studio band. And, uh, and this guy O'Brien, he just there's a certain quality, it's not so much chops in his recordings, but sort of this hot and ragged, quality that's really uniquely his own. The whole mission for the set was not simply to... uh, talk about those who've already been committed to the canon, but um, shine a light on those who maybe less is known about, but but are equally deserving of a you know an ear to their work. Mm-hmm. Another artist like that, a totally different genre, would be um, Sister Ernia May Cunningham, who appears on on several tracks either uh, as a as a leader or on tracks by uh, by other artists. But her key track, I think, is probably a Sign of Judgment, um, really great gospel, early early sort of gospel track with preaching interjections in the middle. It just has this urgency to it that I think anyone can respond to, whatever their leanings in terms of uh, going toward or away from the light. Um, mm-hmm. It's just a really, uh, really beautiful work. The devil's music, and, or, or or a call to heaven, as or, the case may yeah, be. Yeah, is it the is it the beating of the cloven hoof, <laughs> or something divine? Who knows? But it sure is wondrous. I 
John Fahey's Revenant Records nor uh, Jack White's uh, Third Man Records are exactly known for their cutthroat business sense. But even by those standards, this is an over-the-top collection. What was your goal in putting together something so elaborate? We, we did want this to leave the world of box sets far behind. Looking back on our prior projects, things like the Charlie Patton and the Albert Eiler, the Captain Beefheart uh, box that you mentioned, proud that some people called those you know the, the the best box sets of their of their time but in the end they were limited by their very category and we really sought to liberate this thing from the the notion of the box set and all that goes along with it that sort of sense of impermanence it's an artisan approach having hardcover cloth bound foil stamped large format art books with you know letter pressed items that, that's still a for those who want it, is is still a really nice way to to engage with text and and images. We wanted to distinguish it from box sets and things like that that are collections of music with accompanying liner notes. This we did not want to be that. We wanted it to be a multi-format narrative that makes a a singular object uh, more akin to a museum exhibit. <laughs> We've been talking to uh, Scott Blackwood and Dean Blackwood about this uh, absolutely fantastic Paramount box set. I don't think does it justice, Jim. But no. <laughs> Object to art, I yeah. think, is what we have. Exactly. of wonder. Yes, it's there indeed. you go. Thank you so much, gentlemen, for uh, coming on Sound Opinions. Thanks so much. Well, thank you, guys. When we come back on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, we continue with some more music history, but of a completely different variety. It's the dawn of metal. Yeah, darling, go make 
listening to Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And that, of course, is the immortal sound of Born to be Wild by Steppenwolf. Obviously, bikers and bikes are a part of the heavy metal sound, but not everything. Last week, we played our conversation with the members of Slayer, and so we thought it would be fun to go back to where it all started with a show we called The Dawn of Metal. Everybody knows heavy metal, even people who don't listen to it. They all think they know what this sound is. What we wanted to do with this show is really look at where the genre came from, what the touchstone bands were, and how they influenced metal now, four decades later. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when we think about rock and roll, rock and roll came from something. You know, it came from blues, it came from country, there are a bunch of influences in there, some gospel music. Heavy metal came from hard rock music, you know, the hardest edge of the rock spectrum. To my mind, it was, it's the music of more. More bass, more volume, more violence, more theatricality, less blues, more Wagner. That's, that's mm. another way of looking at it. I think, Which is another way of saying, uh, you know, less primitivism, more chops. Mm-hmm. People in heavy metal bands know how to play. Absolutely. And I think it's also one of the reasons why a lot of the, the quintessential heavy metal bands, when we talk about the start of that genre, late 60s, early 70s, a lot of them happened to come from Europe and, and the U.K. specifically. And I think there was more of a European influence seeping into rock and roll, whereas most of the influences in rock and roll up until that point had been very much Southern and American. The blues influence was paramount in rock and roll. And I think when it started to turn into heavy metal, those European bands started bringing in a lot of those Euro-classical influences and getting some of the blues out of there. Well, I know the reason for that, Greg. Drugs. (laughs) You know, you, you can't talk about the birth of heavy metal without talking about the psychedelic explosion of 66, 67, 68 in in the United States and in Britain as well. The psychedelic movement when people started dropping acid or pretending that they did when they made records that sounded that strange and otherworldly, you know, it blew out the doors. You know, you could bring in any influence. You could bring in Eastern music, other different world beats. And one of the things you could do is take that basic blues drive and begin to bring it into strange places. As I said, Steppenwolf sang about heavy metal thunder in 68, but the real birth of heavy metal seems to have happened about 70, 71. It wasn't heavy metal when Steppenwolf sang it. Mm -hmm. Neither was it metal yet when some of the bands I'm going to talk about were making it. Early on in Detroit, you know, when you had bands like the Stooges and the MC5, it was veering into metal. They were taking the basic blues riff. They were really amplifying it. They they were, you know, everything was more high octane as befits the Motor City and with that psychedelic edge. Similarly, in San Francisco, you had Blue Cheer, classic album, Vincibus Eruptum, you know, <laughs> and taking uh, Summertime Blues, the Eddie Cochran song, and bringing that into whole, you know, some other terrain. Sometimes I wonder what I'm gonna do. Lord, there ain't no kill for. 
for the summertime blues. They were named after one of Owsley's most potent brands of LSD that <laughs> the chemist had cooked up. You know, but it was still basically a blues rock trio, much like Jimi Hendrix. He's often been called a metal progenitor. Right. But it wasn't really metal yet, and there's much more soul and blues and a lot of jazz in mm-hmm. what Hendrix was doing. You even hear what's becoming heavy metal on Abbey Road when John Lennon gives you uh, She's So Heavy. Yeah. It's there right in the song title mm-hmm. and it's got that, that one of the hallmarks of metal, that pounding, heavy, heavy, slow beat. She's so Let's not forget uh, Helter Skelter, too, another Beatles track that I think uh, laid the groundwork for metal. Oh, absolutely, Greg. My favorite scholar on the subject is a uh, professor of sociology based here in Chicago. Dina Weinstein wrote a great book, Heavy Metal, A Cultural Sociology. She spent years and years and years. Dina's the sort of person who is in the mosh pit, Mm -hmm. you know, in the thick of it. Right. Spent years and years trying to get to the bottom of where exactly the genre came to be called heavy metal. She never never divined it. As early as 71, there was a writer in Cream magazine who used the phrase to describe a Sir Lord Baltimore album. It was not Lester Bangs. Mm -hmm. He's often given credit. But he didn't coin the term heavy metal. It was a guy named Mike Saunders, went on to be called Metal Mike Saunders. And Dina was unable to get to where was the first heavy metal record? What was the first time it was used? It's a debate that metal fans are going to always have. I'll give you my choice, though, okay? okay? As I said, I think that this this period of psychedelia into blues and, and then ramping everything up another, you know, pushing it to 11, if yeah. you will, that's the key and where metal begins. I'm going to talk about Hawkwind and mm-hmm. the song Silver Machine. Mm-hmm. I think this is a good choice for the first great actual heavy metal as opposed to hard rock or anything else song for a couple of reasons. You know, Hawkwind was a space rock band. They were they were too clumsy, basically, to be a great psychedelic rock group. Mm-hmm. They were taking psychedelic rock drugs and they were singing about journeying to outer space, you know, outer and inner space, you know, <laughs> psychedelic and interstellar overdrives. But, you know, their bass player, who had been a roadie for the Hendrix Trio, did you know that? That. Lemmy Kilmeister, he was a little bit of a problem guy in the band. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> everybody else was taking LSD, but Lemmy took speed. Yeah. So this guy is speeding off his cord. The other guys are tripping, and and it wasn't meshing. And eventually he got kicked out of the band, went on to form a group called Motorhead, mm-hmm. okay? But while he was still in Hawkwind, he wrote this song, Silver Machine. It's a classic. Listen to the way the bass drives the song. It's got to be said, the guitar gets all the press in heavy metal, but there is no good heavy metal band yeah. without a killer bassist. You know, listen to the way the bass drives this song. What is the silver machine? I mean, you know, this is an homage to this great mechanical heavy 
metal, you know, whatever it is. I don't know what Lemmy's talking about. I don't really want to know, I don't think. But it's heavy, it's metal. I think this is song number one. Hawkwind's Silver Machine on Sound Opinions. Hawkwind with Silver Machine from 1972 on Sound Opinions. Now, back in the late 60s, early 70s, bands like Hawkwind were defining a sound that really hadn't been named yet. It was a critical time for the genre, Jim, where a lot of this stuff started to edge toward that extreme area where now we look back and we go, oh yeah, that's heavy metal. But back then, these people were experimenting. They, were, they weren't quite sure what they were getting themselves into, but it was clearly new territory. And I think that was the case with Led Zeppelin on their debut album in 69, the self-titled record. You know, I talk to Robert Plant now, and he wants to slap you if you bring up heavy metal and Led yeah. Zeppelin in yeah, the yeah, same yeah. sentence. You know, we, we have nothing to do with heavy metal. The larger point there is that, yes, they were pretty widescreen. They were doing a lot of different things. They were doing acoustic stuff. They were doing Indian ragas. They were doing blues. And, yes, there was this harder-edge rock sound that they had. But there's no denying that a song like Dazed and Confused from that first record sure. laid the groundwork for a lot of metal bands. And you mentioned the bass earlier, and John Paul Jones's bass introduction to the song alone sets a sort of subterranean template for how a bass should sound on a heavy metal record.
I mean, a lot of metalheads say, no, Zeppelin really wasn't. You know, they were hard rock. Right. Or they were almost, it's almost like saying the Beatles were a rock and roll band. Yeah. I mean, the Beatles are just the Beatles, right? Right. Led Zeppelin has become just Led Zeppelin. But then you will still talk to that diehard Disfear fan or Cannibal Corpse fan who's the greatest metal drummer of all time. They say John Bonham. John Bonham, yeah. Well, I don't know. If he was a metal drummer, then he was might have been a metal band. with that sort of, uh, you know, faux castrato operatic range of his. That set a template for countless metal vocalists. I mean, you don't have Rob Halford of Judas Priest if you don't have Robert Plant going for those notes he had no business going for. So there there was a range to the vocals, high-end extreme, low-end extreme. That, to me, the music of extremes, heavy metal, Led Zeppelin was forging the blueprint in 1969. And virtuosity, four virtuoso players. Absolutely. We're going to take a short break, but when we return, we'll continue with our Metal 101 right here on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Want to share your thoughts about this great and mighty musical genre that, let's face it, deserves a little more respect? Call 888-859-1800. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott here with Jim DeRogatis, and we're talking about the early days of heavy metal. What you're hearing right now is a song from 1986, Metallica's Master of Puppets, one of the great heavy metal tracks. And at that time, there was no doubt what this was. Metallica was a heavy metal band, and that was one of the great heavy metal tracks. But 16 years earlier, in 1970, bands were still setting the stage for what heavy metal was going to sound like. And I think A number one was Black Sabbath with that 1970 self-titled record. The very first notes 
from the very first song, yeah. the very first Black Sabbath record. That's it. That's yeah. the sound right there. whether Led Zeppelin was, was heavy metal or not, but there's no debating. You know, Black Sabbath is, is ground zero. They're patient number one. Yep. Here was the end of the hippie era. If, if it hadn't ended before that, it ended here. These guys were having hippies for lunch. Watch It was not a pretty music. There were satanic occult overtones throughout this music. What is this that stands before me? Yeah. You know, <laughs> Ozzy Osbourne staring out at this figure the bell of death pointing at him in a field. And right. he is scared witless. Right. And, you know, you talk to those guys now, and, and they were just huge horror movie fans. The bassist for Black Sabbath, Geezer Butler, who wrote many of the lyrics for the band, went to see The Exorcist. Countless times. Apparently, there's a legendary story about him just sitting in the movie theater and seeing, like, you know, 12 screenings in a row of right, The right, Exorcist right. and just being totally imbued with this idea. That's what we need to be. That's how we set ourselves apart from all these other blues rock heavy bands coming out of England at the time. And well, they created mean, a new sound and a new vision for that sound. Zeppelin still had the hippy dippy flower power, you know? I got my flower, I got my power, yep. I got my woman to love. Yep. Sabbath wasn't, you know, nobody wanted to love them. They were ugly, working-class guys from Birmingham, yep. you know, middle of nowhere. They had no hope. They had no chance. But this music was their salvation. But they weren't singing about salvation. They were singing about damnation. Yep. Yep. Uh, they were they, Like the great bluesmen, they were finding catharsis in reveling in the dark side. Absolutely. And uh, the riff was king, but it was slower and more ominous than it ever had been before. And Tony Iommi was the guy who forged that sound. Those first four Black Sabbath records laid that foundation. But I think there was a couple other records, Jim, in 1970, besides the Black Sabbath debut, that really set the tone for what metal was going to sound like. I hope you're going to Deep Purple. Deep Purple, without a doubt. You know, before this, Deep Purple had been around for a while, and they'd put out a couple of records. I mean, they were pr- probably best known at this point for that song, Hush. Right. Uh, it was, it was a Britpop invasion, you know, yeah. British invasion hit. Hush, hush. I thought I heard a call in my name now. Hush, hush. She broke my heart, but I love her just the same now. Hush, hush. I thought I heard her call in my name now. Hush, hush. I need her love and I'm not to blame now. I got early in the morning. I got late in the evening. A little bit of psychedelia in there, but nothing new. The new sound came along with In Rock, their 1970 record. That's when they really forged this new sound. 
And you listen to a track like Speed King from that record, this long opus where Ian Gillen, by the way, Ian Gillen, right? What's the trivia about him? He was Jesus Christ Superstar. He was Jesus he was Christ the voice Superstar. of Christ, yeah. Exactly. He was the, before it went to Broadway, before it became a movie, it was actually an album, and they asked Ian Gillen to play the role of Christ in yeah. Jesus Christ Superstar. The guy had a tremendous voice. But what was great about this band, in addition to Gillen, was a John Lord with these gothic, doomy organ chords over the top of Richie Blackmore's guitar. And you combine those elements, and you had this amazing boogie band that morphed into something darker and more sinister on the in-rock record. And I think Speed King is a great example of what they were doing. By the time you get to their classic Machine Head album, again, they are, you know, it's beginning to be this sound that's embracing certain things. Black, you got to wear all black. Sabbath yeah. gave us that. You want to be on the dark side. Sabbath gave us that. But also the, the love of Machine that had been there from Steppenwolf, mm-hmm. right? right? You know, we are going to embrace big, ugly, clanking, smoking, horrible, polluting <laughs> machines. Deep Purple singing about space trucking and a highway star, you yeah. know? Even in the beauty, there's this kind of ugliness. The other thing that I uh, wanted to mention from 1970. You mentioned Dina Weinstein, one of the great heavy metal scholars alive. The other one that I would like to pay tribute to is Martin Popoff, uh, Mm. this writer from Canada, who's written many great books about heavy metal. And I talked to him at length about his love for Uriah Heep. And I finally come around to accepting his idea that Uriah Heep belongs right in that metal pantheon, especially for what they were doing in 1970 with the record, uh, their self-titled record. Actually, it was self-titled in the U.S., but in uh, Europe, it was known as very heavy, very humble, <laughs> which is more heavy, heavy metal as, as far as heavy, I'm very heavy. heavy, yes. And it was heavy. And uh, again, that organ played a big part in it. Uh, Ken Hensley on, on the keyboards and uh, overlaying that keyboard sound over the top of this relentless bass line. I don't think you really heard a bass line like this in hard rock until Uriah Heep got to the song Gypsy. It was really a prototype for Nine Inch Nails. I mean, it was literally that driving, almost industrial sound. If you can imagine that projected 20 years into the future, you get Nine Inch Nails. I was only 17. I fell in love with a gypsy queen. She told me, hold on. father was the leading man. Said, you're not welcome on our land. As a foe, he told me to go. Took me to a little shack and put a whip across my back, then told her, Leave me. I was out for quite a time. Came back with her on my mind Sweet little girl She means all the world Then 
I think, Jim, you got to go to Judas Priest. They started out in 1969, but they didn't start really releasing music till about four or five years later. But they were contemporaries of Sabbath and, and Uriah Heep and Deep Purple and these bands that were coming out of the UK in the late 60s. When they finally got around to recording, though, they I think they took metal in a new direction that set the bar a little higher for a lot of the bands that we would hear coming out of California in the United States in the early 80s. And I'm talking right. about like Slayer, Metallica, Megadeth. Right, as well as, well as what the Priest. English called the new wave of heavy metal, Absolutely. which is the second generation of those bands. No doubt about it. I think Judas Priest got there first. And as I was listening to this track recently again, it struck me that even somebody like Jane's Addiction was listening to these guys at this stage. I mean, you can't tell me there's not a little bit of Perry Farrell, a little bit of early Janes in, mm-hmm. in what, what Judas Priest was doing. So they influenced a lot of bands at this stage in their career. They were the transitional band between that early heavy metal sound when it was still not quite certain what it was, and now we definitely had something called heavy metal, and Judas Priest really embodied it, right down from to Rob Halford riding out on stage in that belching Harley yeah, with, yeah. with the leather studs on him. Mean, he was totally embracing this theatricality that was coming into metal. And those early Judas Priest records, they're not as well known as some of the later stuff like Breaking the Law and songs that sort of made their reputation almost as a radio presence in the early 80s. But I think the stuff that they did in the mid-70s was was more influential. Oh, those are my favorite, yeah. Glenn Tipton and K.K. Downing, first of all, he had that double guitar thing going on in Mm -hmm. this band. And that was a key sound for heavy metal. I mean, you know, let's do it more. Let's double it up. Instead of one guitar, let's have two guitars. Not not just one virtuoso, but two (laughs) running up and down the neck nonstop. And you can hear it on this song I want to highlight. It's called Victim of Changes, a a live version of a track that appeared on their Sad Wings of Destiny record from 76. That's a key metal album from that mid-period of the genre, and this is a key track from that album. Victim of Changes by Judas Priest on Sound Opinions.
victim of changes by the mighty Judas Priest. You know, Greg, just a couple things to point out. You, you, we mentioned two rock academics, Popoff and Weinstein. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, for a music that's allegedly stupid, more brilliant examinations in academia and in rock writing have been written about heavy metal yeah. than virtually any other genre. I think one of the things people don't understand is that while there's a certain primal simplicity, it's about feeling rather than head. Nevertheless, that doesn't mean that it's stupid. Right. You have to feel a heavy metal band. You know, if you're not standing in front of the amps and feeling the bass drum rattling your chest mm-hmm. and, 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 and your rib cage is shaking with the guitar solo and the bass, you're not really getting it, right? But there's also something happening behind the scenes. Even though it may, we can make fun of it and Spinal Tap did it immortally, the heavy metal world remains divided. Was that a good thing or a bad thing? Most of the great metal heads I know can laugh at themselves. Yeah. And they can recognize the truth in that. Well, that that's true. And I think also the subject matter, a lot of people rip metal as, as kind of inane, but I, I think they misread a lot of the lyrics. I think, in fact, a lot of the metal songs, the best metal songs, have a sort of timelessness about them. You can perform these songs with some dignity when you're in your 50s, you know? Well, it's and, absolutely true. Sabbath is still, you know, when, when they're all in a good mood, you mm-hmm. know, Sabbath today is still great. Without a doubt, look at Lemmy from Motorhead, for example. There's a guy who's going to die with his boots on. Yeah. And he's not going to look silly. In fact, he's still going to be the scariest guy in the room. Because they are singing about subject matter that goes beyond your traditional sex, love, rock and roll template. Yeah. Uh, this is stuff that has sort of a timeless quality to it. The ride is right into the night. talking about the dark side of life. They're talking about war. They're talking about mayhem. They're talking about violence. They're talking about being scared witless about what's going on in the world. Well, and also just the joy of sometimes sticking your head inside a blender, (laughs) you know what I mean? Or sometimes you just have to be stupid once in a while. (laughs) The amazing thing about metal is that everybody thought it was going to die any second. I mean, it has no lifespan at all. And the beauty of it, it is like a cockroach. It just keeps coming back. And it continues to breed subgenres after subgenres. Well, it's Jim. mutating. That's the thing. <laughs> you know, think about thrash and speed metal, which was the big innovation after that first wave of metal with uh, Priest and Motorhead coming into the game and the, and the new wave of British metal influencing bands like Metallica and Slayer and Megadeth. Then you had the offshoot from that death metal. Uh, Slayer introducing the macabre imagery and all these Florida bands sprouting up deicide and death and morbid angel, you know, yeah. creating that sound. Then you had an offshoot of that in Sweden with more melody introduced, a melodic death metal with in flames and dark tranquility. You had the grindcore movement in the UK with napalm death. You had black metal, which those uh, Nordic countries dominated mm-hmm. for so long. Well, let's uh, not forget hair metal as much as I'd like to. Uh, no, but, it, you know, it actually brought it to a new commercial level in the 80s. A lot of people associate uh, their rite of passage into 
rock and roll with those hair metal bands that were the boon and the bane of MTV in the late 80s, you know, from the Motley Crues to the Wingers and, and the Warrants. Right. Then you had the doom goth metal genre with the Obsessed and St. Vitus and Candlemass. And, of course, stoner metal, one of our favorite genres, you know, with Caius and Monster Magnet and this band that we're going to play next. It really brings us back full circle. We started with, you know, blues taking too many psychedelic drugs and turning it into metal. <laughs> I think that's what High on Fire is doing, one of our favorite groups from the metal underground the last couple of years. We're going to play Death Is This Communion, the title track off High on Fire's 2007 album, as we say goodbye. But first, Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Jim, next week we are going to play our annual mixtapes, a roundup of some of our favorite songs of the year. Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lynn, Jason Saldana, Anthony Martinez, and our intern is Jake Smith. Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. 12-string Frank calling from Staten Island. I'm really happy I got to hear your show with the interview with Slayer, and it was good that you finally interviewed a real full-fledged heavy metal band. But, you know, I've never really been a, a fan of Slayer or that type of heavy metal music. To me, it's just incredibly noisy. Yeah, you do get to hear the vocals and the words on a record, but live, it's just a mishmash. You never really get to hear anything. The singer's just wasting his time. If you want to hear some really good heavy metal that has really good topics and good lyrics, and you do get to hear the words, how about Blind Guardian? A band like that, a fantasy type of band. Fantasy heavy metal is the real stuff. Jasmine from Chicago, and I just finished listening to your interview with the Dr. Slayer, and as I was listening, I was reminded of something that happened. I was on tour with my band, and we happened to be playing a show in D.C. at the same time that Slayer was playing a show in D.C., and the lead guitarist of our band was friends with the head bouncer at the club that Slayer was playing at, so we went over to the club and caught maybe the last 20 minutes of the show. 
and I was sitting up in the main bar area with our drummer when the guys from Slayer came out and sat down at the bar and got some drinks. And they noticed us sitting over there and called us over and got us drinks and just put us right at ease and asked us about our band, and they were just the nicest guys. Just getting to sit there and chat with them about being in a band and the fact that these guys were gods of metal, and here they are talking to this bassist from this no-name band from the Midwest like she was an equal. And thank you so much for doing the interview with them because I feel like that interview also showed how, yeah, they're still in the midst of all of the fame. They're just real guys who are playing music. Hi, this is Trevor Adams calling from Grand Junction, Colorado. I'm calling because I've been really enjoying going back into the vaults and listening to some older shows as I wait for new shows to come out. And I came across a really funny show from 2005 where Jim and Greg are arguing about Bruce Springsteen. One of you, of course, is a big fan and the other one hates the boss. And you two bicker back and forth for quite a while. In fact, I had to turn it off because it got to be so annoying. I just thought it was really interesting how much better you guys have become about getting along when you disagree with each other. You don't spend a whole lot of time arguing, <laughs> which I really appreciate. Nobody wants to just hear a couple of guys scream at each other. <laughs> Keep up the uh, awesome shows. Thank you so much. more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.